0: The Triathlon Show, 293. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Andy Blow. Andy is the founder of Precision Hydration and uh, as long-time listeners will know he has been a guest on the podcast uh, several times before and uh, he's back now for an update on similar topics as we have discussed previously namely hydration and nutrition and uh, in particular for racing Uh, but uh, a new angle that we take in this interview is uh, the work that Andy and Precision Hydration have done with pro athletes in helping them, consulting with them and uh, getting to see all their data before and after after the race in terms of uh, what their race nutrition plan was and race hydration plan was and then what the ex- actual execution was and uh, we start the interview by from that perspective uh, discovering what are the current best practices used by some of the fastest athletes in the sport of triathlon and outside of triathlon as well for that matter but before we get into the interview with Andy big thanks to our sponsors and the precision hydration is one of the sponsors of this episode uh, I've for very long time listeners you'll know that precision hydration was the first sponsor that came on board uh, with that triathlon show so huge thank you to them uh, for sticking with the podcast for so long it's uh, really fantastic to have such a long great long-term relationship I just want to quickly highlight two things that Andy will mention later in the interview. Uh, Two resources that uh, you can make use of uh, from Precision Hydration to help uh, get your race nutrition and hydration plan uh, up to the best possible level that you can get it. One is their new resource, the Quick Carb Calculator, with which you can calculate how much carbohydrate uh, that you should take in racing or in training. And if you want to have a free consultation with a hydration and nutrition expert, then book a free consultation. Uh, in on the precision Generation website i have li- i have links to that in the show notes as well and of course if you want to buy any precision Generation products use the promo code that triathlon show one five to get 15 percent off and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com roca are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits dry suits swimskins goggles high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses whether you're looking to go faster in the open water, get more performance and aerodynamics out of your tri-suit or find a perfect pair of uh, eyeglasses that combines function, comfort and design, Roca have an option for you based on exceptional R&D and attention to every single detail in any product category. Uh, personally, I use many Roca products from the Merrick XT wetsuit to the Rory prescription glasses and all of them I consider really top-notch products that I absolutely love using, really amazing products. You can get 20% off your Roka order with the promo code that you can get on Roca.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Andy Blow. Welcome back to The Triathlon Show, Andy. How are you doing today?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks, Michael.
0: How are you? I'm good as well thank you Uh, for the listeners that may not uh, know who you are it's been it's been uh, a bit of a time a bit of a time since you've last been on can you give uh, an introduction to to who you are and your background in endurance sports definitely
1: yeah um so yeah my name's Andy Blow I'm the founder CEO of Precision Hydration um like many of your listeners I, I used to be a pretty serious triathlete um I've luckily I've recovered now though. So I'm getting better. Um, uh, I, I learned a lot about hydration and a bit, and a bit about nutrition and fueling from doing the sport myself and often through making a lot of mistakes and particularly around the hydration side. That was the, the catalyst for me getting into, into hydration as a sort of concept and then eventually growing a business out of that. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been Precision Hydration have been in business for ten years now. Um, although we work across a lot of different sporting disciplines and sporting codes lot of, across the world, we work with baseball teams and American football teams, soccer teams in the Premier League and stuff. Our our sort of heart is with endurance and in particular with multisport. So that's that's the kind of background that a lot of the team comes from and um we we enjoy working with a, a lot of triathletes and multi-sport athletes around the world to this day
0: yeah and that's something that i want to uh get into in in today's topic the athletes that you've been working with uh because basically we planned on maybe going through some case studies with uh some of the top athletes that you have been working together with and helping them develop their uh nutri- nutrition and hydration strategies so Uh, perhaps you can start by discussing what sort of relationships you have with these athletes and how you generally help them with these strategies
1: yeah so i think the way as a company as a brand the way that we work with professional athletes is perhaps a little bit different to the way many companies do um the the relationships that we have with athletes if they end up being sponsored or being ambassadors for us tends to start with them making contact with us because they feel like they've got a problem in hydration or fueling or both which they want to they want to solve and we tend to jump in and try try our best to help them to solve that problem and kind of you know get them get them on track with their their hydration and nutrition intake for races and that often is the catalyst for a further conversation then about whether they would like to represent the brand so it's not really the way that we sort of don't sit around strategically thinking who would we like to represent our brand and then go out and reach out to them I mean sometimes we are we are quite proactive in the conversations we have with people but generally the the relationship with athletes are are around performance first and then about sponsorship later so we've had a lot of conversations with a lot of athletes over the years many of which don't turn into sponsorship arrangements but some of which do and they're the ones that people visibly see above the line Um, and and usually we we tend to be very try to be very clear on what our lane is and our lane has been to to a large extent hydration and helping with hydration strategies that inevitably is an, an Crossed over with conversations about fueling, but we don't stray outside of the kind of exercise window too much. So we don't try to give general day-to-day nutrition advice. That's that is a completely separate professional domain. We're very focused on uh, what people eat and drink immediately before and during, and potentially immediately after hard training sessions and races to get the maximum performance in that short window
0: yeah so uh, so when you work with athletes in this capacity and let's discuss racing perhaps in in this context what what do you help them with when when you create the hydration and fueling plan what what are the things that go that go into the plan in the first place
1: Over, over the years the plans have actually been simplified we used to start to look at them from all sorts of different angles but what we boiled it down to in the end is something which we've kind of I guess, coin the phrase of the, the three levers that you can pull in terms of fueling and hydration during a race is and the, the most impactful levers to pull are how much fluid to take, how much sodium to take, and how much carbohydrate to take. And those three fundamentals are what we try to focus on. So when we when we work out a hydration plan with an athlete, it will be focused around their total sweat loss, their total sodium loss, and then how much of that potentially needs replacing and with the the fueling the carbohydrate planning it's about how much carbohydrate is optimal and how much they can tolerate per hour and then how to meet how to meet those three needs in the most simple way as possible so so the the approach is about writing a plan or working with the athlete to to come up with a plan before a race which is usually put into a very simple spreadsheet Looking at then how they're going to, what products they're going to use to implement that plan. And then immediately after the race, doing a debrief where we gather as much detailed information as we can about what they actually consumed so that we can then break it down into liters of water, milligrams of sodium, grams of carbohydrate, how that was spread out across the race, comparing it with the weather conditions, comparing it with their perceived performance level, and comparing it with any perception of GI distress or lack of. And then that kind of goes into our database with that athlete to say, all right, well, moving on from there, how does what, what they were planning to do and what they did compare? How does all of that compare with what we would consider to be scientifically rigorous or like textbook guidelines? And then what what might push us to, to keep that the same or change one, two or three aspects of it?
0: Mm. Uh, at what point uh, how long before the race would you typically sit down and and create the strategy
1: ideally you'd be close enough to the race that the athlete is focused on it but far enough away that they're not they're not caught up in the minutiae of the travel and the stuff before it so usually it's about a week out i would say Um, that's 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 about optimal depending on their schedule
0: and what about Training your nutrition hydration strategy is that something that we definitely see worked with? They kind of know what they're going to be doing, so they have already been practicing something very similar to what they will be doing in racing. Is that how it works? Or,
1: in an ideal world, it does, yes. Like the key training sessions in, in triathlon terms, the big brick sessions or the fast brick sessions are the ones where we encourage an element of simulation of the nutrition plan using identical products, using identical strategies the only time that becomes tricky is when someone's training in environmental conditions that could be vastly different to the race in which case you kind of have to you 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 can't hydrate as if you were training for hawaii if you're training in cool conditions because you would just over drink for example so you kind of have to make allowances but but as much as possible we try to encourage like one or two sessions a week in the last few weeks to that, that really simulate what you do on race day just to flush out any any problems with it
0: mm, yeah so so if we discuss uh, some commonalities of uh, what these athletes that you're working with what, what they're doing in terms of their hydration and their nutrition what are the things that you tend to see that they do in a very similar way uh, are there some variables where they fall in a pretty narrow range uh, and some others where they're quite widespread can you discuss that a bit
1: yeah i think f- for definite the way that you see the widest ranges are both within an individual and between an individuals are in the fluid consumption levels so we will see in cool conditions even in quite a long race we can see athletes drinking as little as two or three hundred milliliters of fluid per hour and that same athlete or or, or even a different athlete might drink one litre per hour during a much, much hotter and more humid event of the same relative intensity. So the bandwidth for the amount of fluid that you take in is really, really high. And that is pretty obviously driven by your overall sweat rate, which is usually a combination of intensity and and environment. So the hotter it is, the faster you're going, the more you're going to need to drink in order to compensate the sweat losses. And, and of course, individual sweat rate comes into that as well because some people do just – do just sweat more than others um, so there's a pretty wide bandwidth there and hand in hand with that comes the sodium recommendation because we know that some athletes sweat a lot and we know that they lose relatively small amounts of sodium in that sweat other athletes might sweat a lot and lose loads of sodium in that sweat so the amount of sodium tends to be proportional to the amount of sweat that's lost overall but also a little bit individualized or or actually sometimes quite a lot individualized to that To the athlete, there's a bit of trial and error involved with both of those two. When it comes to the fueling element, the carbohydrate consumption, I would say that there's still a reasonable amount of variance between athletes, but 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 less variance overall Um, because partly because the the numbers in in terms of grams of carbohydrate that that work for athletes or or are scientifically proven to work for athletes seems to be a lot more there's a lot more consensus around that and i think it's something that i've seen in the last four or five years has been talked about a lot more in terms of athletes aiming to consume a little bit more carbohydrate so we've we've tended to see at the sharp end of races the professionals and elite athletes that we're working with there's a trend for them to be eating quite a high amount of carbohydrate in a in a slightly narrower band than you would say like the difference you're not going to get someone i don't think you you might see someone drinking three times as much fluid as another person, it would be rare to see someone eating three times as much carbohydrate.
0: Mm. What would that carbohydrate would be, for example, if you're talking about half distance triathlons?
1: Uh, for half, for a 70.3 kind of distance, the we, we would be advising a lot of athletes to, if we had no prior information on them, we would start with something, you know, between 60 and 90 grams of carb per hour, over the duration of the bike and run um with it with those numbers probably loaded up a bit more heavily on the bike to allow for the fact that you'd take less on the run and um but what we're also seeing is there are a number of athletes who would go a little bit beyond that so maybe up to 100 even 120 grams um carbohydrate per hour in that in that period. So it's kind of I would say there are probably a few athletes who get away with a little bit less than sixty grams an hour. I've even seen 45 50 grams an hour for people who are doing really quite well in the races. But the question mark for me on, on those is not whether you can't argue that it is sufficient if they do well, if they meet their goals in the race, but it's more like, okay, well, could could more have unlocked a bit more performance or maybe enhanced recovery or something like that. So that's the kind of that's the zone i would say that we're talking about yeah
0: yeah what about if we go to full distance do you see a trend to slightly higher intakes there
1: i think aspirationally there's definitely a trend to taking more you know as in people's plans often incorporate more but it's also a lot it's trickier to hit those numbers hour after hour after hour in a long race especially if things don't go your way because even professional athletes are emotionally driven and if your race isn't going brilliantly it can be tempting for your head to drop a little bit and for you to take your eye off the ball when it comes to like really keeping on top of fueling and, and those sort of things so I would say that it yeah the the re- when when it goes well for people and when people are, are really smashing it they tend to be hyper alert to keeping their pace up and their fueling up together and so you see that that being able to be maintained when races don't go so well, it's often can be a little bit difficult to unpick whether the fueling levels or the hydration intake or whatever has dropped because that's, and that's caused a drop in performance or whether a drop in performance has kind of happened. And as a result, the athlete has kind of lost a bit of interest and isn't fueling as well. You see know what mm. I mean? So yep. that's why a bit of a, that's why a bit of a subjective debrief after the race is often really important. to to kind of contextualize the numbers that you see
0: yeah and i I don't know are are you working with any short course athletes on the olympic distance sprint distance you probably don't really need need much if if anything but olympic distance are you working with any athletes on that distance
1: one one or two and we have a few athletes that kind of straddle that maybe do this 70.3 distance and are transitioning up from shorter distance we're working with a couple of marathon runners as well um so for those for those athletes they have a bit more I think there's an advantage to fueling in a two-hour race. I actually didn't use to fuel sometimes in Olympic distance triathlons back 20-odd years ago, and I think that was quite typical. Maybe just had a bit of water on the bike or something. Gels, people were starting to take gels on the bike, and now I would say the average there is that most Olympic distance athletes that we see will try to take one if not two gels on the bike. You know, so it's sort of like – that would be 40 to 60 odd grams of carbohydrate probably if they're taking two gels and probably perhaps even carry one on the start of the run, but whether they can get that down them or not depends on the pace and how they're feeling. So there's definitely a move, a move towards that also with the, with the, with the drinking, you know, maybe a, maybe a carbohydrate drink on the bike to meet the fueling and hydration needs. If it's hot is also pretty common strategy.
0: Mm. And what about running? You mentioned marathon running. What, what are the trends you see there with carbohydrates?
1: A lot of people, obviously, Morton is a big name in the in the field of fueling for marathons because they've got very high carbohydrate drinks. And they've brought out some gels as well. So I think they've helped with their because Morton. You have to tip your hat to their marketing and their sort of outreach, and they've done a great job in highlighting the fact that a lot of these elite marathon runners are, are aiming for very high carbohydrate consumptions. And so we've had more conversations with athletes about, you know, fueling through liquids and that, because I think fueling with liquids can make a lot of sense in a marathon if you're running fast, because it's far more easier and digestible than getting a gel down and then having to chase it with some water. I think you can do both. I think fueling with gels in a marathon has a, has a massive case when it's cold conditions because you don't want to drink the volume of fluid. Um, But I would say, Marathon runners are probably, like the rest of the endurance run, Are kind of getting swept along with the idea that actually the the old school mentality of like running a bit lean and taking as little calories as possible is, is becoming superseded by the attitude of actually if I can get more in without GI distress, then I'll take more. And so yeah. people are talking about gut training and all these kind of things, you know, which wasn't so much on the agenda 10 years ago
0: yeah what are your recommendations when it comes to to running let's say if somebody's aiming to run a marathon between three and four hours uh, what, what would you recommend if you don't have any much other information about them
1: if they're pushing pretty hard if that's a high intensity for them you know to run three or four hours if that's like they're going for a pb then we're sort of in the 60 grams an hour carbohydrate range i would say as an aspirational number to try to get in and for elite runners obviously elite runners wouldn't wouldn't be running those times but for elite runners they have it a little bit easier because they can probably pick up water bottles and gels every 5k with their own plan with for the for other people that's where like carrying some gels for that for some of that duration depending on what's available on course actually becomes a good halfway house and and practicing fueling on their longer training runs you know what would be like the typical long sunday morning run there was, a, there was a definite trend a few years ago for people to want to do those runs fasted and run on as little carbohydrate as they could to, to improve fat burning. But I think the trend is more coming back towards people realizing that actually you can keep a higher intensity, you can recover faster, and it's more, it's more um, simulation for your gut for race day if you fuel during those runs, in which case carrying a handful of gels with you is a small weight penalty that actually results in an overall performance gain
0: yeah absolutely um going back to sodium uh, one one question that i also wanted to ask is uh, whether the athletes that you work with have done a specific sweat test that you offer with uh, through your partners with a uh, with a medical grade device or whether they are more so estimating perhaps with the help of your sweat test or just trial and error in training how, how do they come up with their sodium numbers
1: Good, good question. Um, mostly we get them the proper sweat test where it's humanly possible. The COVID year has tested that a little bit because we have been working with athletes who weren't able to access a test, in which case we would far more, we would have far more in-depth conversation with them about past experience and getting them to do our online test and really trying to drill down into the best guess we could make before we can get them tested. But we always, we always like to know the hard numbers if we can. So I would say with pro athletes it's like 9 times out of 10 it's with a proper sweat test and they're usually very keen to to do that. We yeah. often we often send them a spreadsheet as well together some sweat rate data through a variety of training sessions and you and I have talked about you know the value of measuring your sweat rate in the past and I'm still a big big believer in that because The the range that we see of like heavy, of of an individual, what is heavy sweat loss for an individual can be quite wide. Some people, when they're sweating a lot, may be sweating a litre an hour. Some people may be sweating three litres an hour when they're sweating a lot. And it's just useful to calibrate the thinking around whether that person is a one litre an hour, a two litre an hour, a three litre an hour person, because it affects how aggressively you look at sodium and, and fluid replacement.
0: Yeah and uh in terms of the the format of the energy consumed with the FC work with is that something where you see any commonalities or are they different uh again whether they use sports drinks or gels or, or bars or something else how do you see that uh that trend going and the, if you're talking about tri- triathlon specifically here we can return to that yeah. arena
1: yeah for triathlon i would say that gels are the king for most people they partly i think that's that's because they are they are the most versatile of all the energy products. They, at a push, you can you can eat most gels without liquid or without liquid immediately. But they're very light and portable. They they contain a, a very measurable dose. Um, as the tr- and certainly for Olympic and half Ironman distance, if you're racing hard, gels are still quite easy to suck down when you're breathing hard. So they sort of make sense for that once the Once the distances get longer though and and even for a lot of people doing a half distance um or certainly a full distance at a more moderate pace, people start to like to introduce more solid food and sort of like the chews and gummies and the bars and that kind of thing and even some some like other real foods in special needs bags, you know like bananas or your favorite snickers bar or whatever it happens to be can can be advantageous because you know, eating for five, six, seven hours on the bike is very monotonous and can get quite sickly, whatever the, the gel or product is that you use. And although I think from a pure physiological performance point of view, it's very possible to do an entire Ironman on gels, it's not pleasant for most people. So most people appreciate having something to chew on, having a different flavor and and whatnot. But um, yeah, and I, I would say like the... The other thing to bear in mind is that it sort of changes based on your your level of output because if you're trying to get 90 to 100 grams of carbohydrate in an hour, that's quite a big task with energy bars, the amount of chewing and digesting and stuff you've got to do. Whereas if you're down at the sort of 50 to 60 grams an hour then a combination of energy bars with some other stuff is, is far more feasible but you're not going to get the guys that are trying to do 120 grams an hour to sort of smash that in energy bars they would just be chewing constantly for the whole yeah. hour
0: yeah when it comes to the ironman for example how many of the pros you've been working with as a proportion would you say are trying to do it using only gels or maybe gels and sports drinks or kind of very simple easy to use sports nutrition products not caring about the variation in what they take in versus the proportion that might want to have a bar or something even something more real food like in there at some point
1: i'd say it's unusual to find any even pros that won't take any bars and stuff during an Ironman. and they definitely are out there but in most of the conversations we have with people they if even if they're slurping down gels. For most of it, they kind of have one or two bars to look forward to, or something, something to change it up. Um, so I would say almost everyone that we're working with has got an element of solid food in their in their plan, and a lot of that, in my view, is as much psychological as anything else. But that's but that's still very valid.
0: Yeah. And, and do they tend to be completely self-sufficient, having all their energy with them and available uh, through special needs bags and so on? Or uh, are they also relying on getting, for example, a lot of the Ironman races provide Gatorade or similar? Uh, how, how many people use that as part of their fueling strategy versus being completely self-sufficient? I
1: don't know many people who are entirely self-sufficient. Um, most of them will, will grab stuff from the aid stations and that will be a mixture of like the sports drinks that are available, water obviously for tipping over their head and maybe chasing down some electrolyte capsules with um, special needs bags occasionally. But we all know that they, even for the pros, there's no guarantee you'll actually get your hands on them depending on what happens. So I think most, most pro athletes have raced enough in enough different places to know that they are going to have to rely on a proportion of aid station stuff. And also they're not going to wait, although, although they will carry a good amount with them from the start, especially if it's say a hilly course or something like that, they're going to factor in the idea that they don't want to have too much weight on their bike or in their pockets. So they're, most of them are open to the idea of, you know, picking the jet, picking up some gels and things that are on the course.
0: Yeah um when you do the debrief after the fact and uh, in those situations when the athlete felt that well something something did go wrong and uh, you come to the conclusion that well something with either hydration or nutrition was probably uh what was at fault or at least partially at fault what are the most common specific issues that you see in in those situations um
1: most common it's I don't know I don't know what would actually I don't know what I would put my finger on and say what's most common because they're often very they are often very individual. I would say when when environmental conditions don't meet the pre-race expectations, you know, when people have got in their heads that maybe a race was going to be quite hot and even if the we see that we all see the forecast, that there are certain places which are kind of known in your head as hot and then if it ends up being uncharacteristically cool on the day, you might see people overdrink still because in their head they were they had prioritized hydration it's kind of hard to to take to take that out um the other one is like being caught up in the racing if it's if the race becomes extremely tactical or doesn't go to plan like for example you were down in the swim and had to chase a lot harder on the bike then maybe there are gaps of time when fueling isn't at the high levels that you wanted it to be at and then there's no opportunity to catch it up so you end up with holes in the in the plan um when we first start working with people and this is not necessarily always, this is not probably true at the at the higher end with the pros but can be with can be and can be with sort of the more elite amateur athletes i would say one of the most common ones is just like under fueling the bike probably if you wanted to and and in fact if you wanted to pick up one trend overall it's that as as obvious as it might seem when you break it down i don't think it's obvious to everyone that in a triathlon even though you've got more time on the bike proportionally per hour you probably need to be fueling quite a bit more than you will on the run so if you were planning to take uh, you know 60 grams of carbs per hour through the through the race you're going to need to be doing 70 or 80 an hour on the bike because on the run you just cannot get as many calories in without stopping too often
0: and, and i think the swim is important to take into consideration here as well because uh, i advise tend to advise athletes to start their uh, their fueling 10 minutes before the race start or 15 minutes before the race start yeah. with one gel and they can count that as kind of their in-race nutrition agreed but yeah. but then you go through the, the swim and especially for an ironman obviously it is a very long one but even for a half ironman it is still well if you're a fast swimmer it can be 25 minutes or so of just being kind of on the rivet or if you're yeah. a slightly slower swimmer it can be 35 40 45 minutes of still probably i think most amateur swimmers use a lot of carbohydrate in the swim because yeah. they're not very efficient and haven't developed a swim as much don't have that same volume and aerobic uh, capacity so so i think we Tend as a population of triathletes to underestimate maybe the impact of the swim there, and you need to Agreed. kind of make up for that on the bike as well.
1: Yeah, that's true, and I think you, your point is definitely a good one. That you know you, you might be burning a lot of calories as a fast swimmer at the front, but you're probably also burning a lot of calories as an inefficient swimmer doing a 40 minute half Ironman swim, and also you've got a, you've got a load of adrenaline coursing through your veins, and adrenaline unlocks. Um, Glucose into the bloodstream and increases uptake of glucose. So you, so you are actually because you are in a fight or flight mode, your body is like primed to burn a load of fuel. And and I definitely think, although it makes sense to let your stomach and your heart rate settle a little bit on the bike before you really start ramming things in, you could, within reason, it's a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a broad sweeping statement. Within 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 reason, I don't think you can start fueling too early on the bike. You know, I think as long as you can tolerate it, it's good to start topping up straight away. Because yep. by the time you feel your blood sugar dry, start to drop, or you feel a bit of a hunger or something, you really are probably a long way eaten into your energy stores
0: yeah absolutely well uh, let's uh discuss the amount of carbohydrates in a bit more detail so you have mentioned here that some of the ranges that you're working with for a half distance you mentioned 60 to 90 as a typical range but with some people maybe especially pros pushing the higher end of that 100 110 even and uh, that's something that I've been experimenting with, with as well in training and in in a couple of races, getting to that high end, and, and it's been working well, I think. So yeah. Uh, but 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 before we go into that high end, uh, just generally speaking, with the sixty to ninety grams, how do you know whether it's sixty or ninety? Because that's still a, a bit of a difference. And, and what are the, I guess the the moderating factors for how much where you should be in that recommended range?
1: Yeah. So well, the recommendation so. The, the 60 gram figure used to come from the fact that the in the lab it's been measured that the uptake of glucose is a, a maximum for most people is around about 60 grams an hour. So you can consume and transport from your gut into your bloodstream around about 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour. And it was thought for a long time that that represented a bit of an upper limit of what you could probably tolerate during exercise. And then researchers like Oscar Eukendrup was one of the major ones who who looked into this in the early 2000s were saying, well, actually elite athletes routinely appear to be consuming more than 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour, absorbing it, presumably tolerating it, and it's helping their performance. How is that? And the 90 gram figure came about because... They found that if you put fructose in with glucose you can use different transporters in the gut and absorb about 30 grams of fructose per hour allegedly and then that gives you kind of 90 grams so that became like a new scientifically proven if you like upper ceiling and that sort of 30 that 60 to 90 gram window it also for for a lot of athletes it kind of the lower end of that around 60 grams an hour seems to seems to coincide with uh, the, the, the habits of what a lot of people will do so for example drink one bottle of sports drink plus take a, an energy gel is going to give you something in the region depending what you're using of around about 60 grams of carbohydrate for example and so that's kind of in people's compass and going beyond that up to 90 starts to take not only a bit more Proactivity, but it takes a bit more confidence and a bit more practice because, obviously, as we know, when you exercise, you get less blood flow to the gut, becomes harder to, to, for the body to absorb stuff generally. And I think people, especially if they've had gut problems before, become wary of a bit worried about trying to push it up to 90 or whatever. So we use that window when we're talking to people saying, Look, 60 to 90, it is quite a wide window. But the idea is that, look, if you're not at 60 yet, let's try and nudge you up towards that and if you're at 60 or a little bit more let's see let's see if we can go a little bit beyond that and start getting up to 90 because we see that with some people it's possible and we're not talking necessarily i think it used to be thought that it was a minority of people that it's possible with but i think my view has shifted that it's not a minority of people who can do it it's just that it's a minority of people who find it easy to do that out of the gates I think for some of us, it requires a bit of persistent effort to get up towards 90 grams. And that's where this concept of like training the gut, as it's called, comes in, which is challenging the gut with a little bit more carbohydrate progressively. Does that allow it to adapt? And I think the although there's not there's not been tons of scientific evidence produced on this yet, there are a lot of credible people in the field. There are a lot of athlete case studies out there that suggests that actually yeah this is something which you can build up to
0: yeah uh, let's get into that in a little bit more detail in in just a minute but before we do that so what about the going beyond 90 grams what what is the the evidence for that being uh, feasible uh, or even advisable going to 100 110 120 grams i think
1: honestly the it started out with the the way most of these things do whereby Let's say in marathon running, you know, it was it was widely recognised that say running 100 miles a week is like really an optimal level for performance. It's it feels like a nice round number and people doing that. And then there's always going to be a guy who goes out there and runs 150 miles a week and can do it and then wins a race or something. And then so, I think what happened first of all is that people start people who are working with elite athletes noticed that some of them were were eating considerably more because often athletes know their bodies they work instinctively and they they eat more and they find if they find a trick that helps them perform better they will repeat that trick you know that's how it that's how things get established and so elite athletes started eating eating more or maybe they've always maybe they've been eating more for a very long time and just no one was counting but there's a precedent for it and then researchers start to cotton onto it and there's um a guy that you've had on the show before, I think, um, Aitor,
0: Aitor Vivera Morales. Yeah,
1: yeah. From and he's done from for research from Spain. Who's done research particularly in ultra running and cycling because he's worked with Astana and people like that. 120 grams an hour he's saying is like yeah we got plenty of athletes can do that you know some when we do it to a group some people get gut problems with it but a good proportion don't and those that don't they see less muscle damage you know they see improved performance so it's becoming more widely accepted that look it if you can do a little bit more it's probably not got a serious downside unless it gives you gi distress and it has got it's got an upside because at the end of the day you know you're burning a lot of energy you're going to burn through a lot more energy than you've got stored in your muscles during a long distance triathlon presumably if you can if you can process more external or exogenous fuel throughout that time period you spare your muscle glycogen better and you have more left at the end which it, which it, which reju- reju- which results in less of a drop off in performance so it is it is one of those rare cases where almost it's not and it's not a, it, it is i hate sweeping statements but it's close to being one of those occasions when you can say yeah do you know what more is better
0: mm. and and do you see a lot of athletes that try to get to those really high levels even in half distance triathlons uh, or is it mostly full distance or is they they kind of similar because as you say you might have aspirational goals to go higher in the full distance but actually in practical terms maybe maybe the difference isn't so big
1: yeah i i'd say from the actu- the actual hard evidence that i've seen with athletes we've worked with it's been more in the lo- it has been more in the long distances because i think it's still filtering down although i've read i've read anecdotal reports from other people like um there's one floating around from Gustav Eden from Daytona that he was taking like 130 grams an hour on the bike or something like that in that race and we we've worked with a couple of athletes who were racing at the front in that race who were taking like 90 to 100 grams an hour so i can well believe that other people were maybe able to to do a little bit more Um, i think the difference is though in a in a short shorter race like a half ironman when you're very very well conditioned you can get away with a little bit a bit leaner fueling and it's not going to it's not going to show up so much because it really is probably from mile like 15, 16 plus on the run in the marathon where this fueling strategy really starts to pay dividends, um, you know, deep, deep into it. And obviously you don't quite reach that level of deep fatigue in a half that you're doing a full
0: yeah yeah i for the pros i have uh, distance race these days takes them three hours 40 or faster even if it's a really fast course so yeah, yeah. three hours 45 three hours 50 for a really slow course so so it's not yeah it's not really that long a time out so as you say I, you would imagine that 90 grams would be plenty because we can still store quite a bit of muscle glycogen if we have tapered and and carb loaded a bit so i also so, so just shouldn't... from from Math perspective, it it does add up that you don't it, really it have works, to go. It works, yeah.
1: And also, although the intensity is high, and by far and away, carbohydrates the primary fuel. You know, these people are very fit and very conditioned, and are very good at burning fat as well. So, there's obviously always a, a, a reasonable contribution of fat into that. Into, into yeah. The, into the energy so it's not just rinsing through muscle glycogen you know especially if the pace it settles in on the bike if the bike's a bit more steady state then you can imagine that they would they're not going to be in a fat burning zone but the proportion of fat is going to be significant
0: yeah yeah absolutely uh so so what about training the gut uh I, you mentioned the the interview with uh, or i thought uh, who i interviewed and i remember that for the study that he made the gut training protocol i think was three weeks during three weeks before the study the race was was the study they had to consume more than 90 grams of carbs per hour for uh, three times per week and, and that was kind of their gut training protocol and then they went on and and most of the group, with even 120 grams per hour, managed to do it without a discomfort. Mm-hmm. But but what is it that you've seen in practice with athletes that have uh, been able to consume really high amounts of carbohydrate that they do to get used to that?
1: The diffi- the difficulty we've had on that so far is that it's a relatively new concept, and with the best will in the world, athletes have been uh, are usually very willing to share their race data and like really think about it in races. But getting them to knuckle down and like record all the numbers accurately and stuff for training sessions repetitively and do it all the time even though i think it could benefit their performance is is a rare thing so being transparent with you i don't think we've got lots and lots of like data to fall back on but subjectively what we try what we what we're encouraging athletes to do and we're trying to get numbers on is is picking one or two key training sessions in a week this is within the last sort of six weeks building up to the race. And the reason for six weeks is simply because it feels like a, a sensible amount of time to drive some adaptations. We know that a lot of physiological adaptations take you know, days and weeks to, to kick in. So starting five or six weeks out, starting with whatever level of carbohydrate they would normally take in those sessions and just, just doing a small linear increase in it, you know, up to a point at which either they start to suffer discomfort or just keep it increasing up and in, up until the race. Um, so it's it's honestly at the moment, it's and I think most people in this space would say the same thing, it's not, there's no hard and fast rules and it's not especially sophisticated. It's essentially going out once or twice a week and really focusing on making sure that you have a little bit more carbohydrate than you, than you had in the same session the week before, thinking about how you feel, thinking about how your GI tract deals with it. And sort of, if your goal is ninety grams in the race, and you're currently comfortably doing sixty, you've just got to put five or ten grams a week in over a few weeks to to get up there. And yeah. um, I, I don't think it needs to be overcomplicated.
0: Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a great answer. Very very practical, uh, and and it's kind of like you know a lot of runners uh, building up for a marathon do it that their first marathon do it that way just adding a few kilometers per week to their overall running and their overall yeah. long run and it's it's simple but it works
1: yeah yeah and, and until someone comes along and people will study this more and come up with like more exciting protocols and things like that i think that that's that's how i would advise people who want to have a go with it to approach it it's like first of all establish your baseline what you think is tolerable and reasonable at the moment and nudge it nudge it upwards on a weekly basis while while figuring out how you how you feel about it. And I think when you're doing fueling, don't forget to don't forget to be mindful about the impact of hydration on your fueling because what you can't do is allow yourself to, you know, go out in the heat and become dehydrated when you're trying to do this because you'll reduce your blood volume, you reduce blood flow to the gut, and that will hit your fueling in a negative way because you won't absorb as much. So the two have kind of got to go hand in hand.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. And and that's another point that we'll get onto in, in a little bit. Uh, but before that, though, uh, you mentioned the glucose and fructose ratio of 2 to 1 glucose to fructose, 60 grams per hour of glucose and 30 grams of fructose, having been shown to be uh, an absorbable amount. Uh, when we get to these higher amounts uh, beyond 90 grams, what do you think are the trends there? Do people tend to uh, to get higher on the glucose or the fructose side and what does the research say if anything about that
1: i i I think whatever people do in that space depends if they we can assume that a lot of people are using two to one glucose fructose products because a lot of them exist they're quite common in the market and so my assumption would be that in the majority of cases people are continuing along the same sort of ratio if they're using gels exclusively or drinks exclusively or whatever to get up so and i And I don't know whether there's been like a a really solid theory proposed as to how this if if it's if it's basically like sixty um, glucose and thirty fructose like where does that where's the missing thirty grams come from I would imagine it's like like anything with with elite athletes it's it's that they they're so, or, or with any group of people, individual ceilings might be just higher than that because the sixty and the thirty are kind of obviously like um, averages or middle middle ground figures. But yes. and you're going to get outliers. So I'm not aware of anything like any solid, solid theory as to as to why you might be able to do more. And 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 honestly, in practical terms, when I talk to some of the nutritionists who work with pro tour cyclists and those kind of people who definitely. they're they're a cohort that definitely know a lot about eating more than 90 grams an hour a lot of them aren't too worried about the 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 ratios they're all about the riders self-monitoring because those guys eat a lot of different foods on the bike and a lot of different drinks and a lot of different things i think the general trend is when they're trying to smash more in it becomes more synthetic um, if not synthetic then more processed you know like it's more gels it's more it's more gooey stuff or liquid stuff rather than they're not going to start eating pastries or something you know Mm. um but at the same time they i don't get the impression talking to like i say some of the 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 people in the who are working with rides in the tour or the world tour or whatever that they're counting the the type of carbohydrate too too heavily i think what they're just doing is just putting more carbohydrate through in whatever format they're used to using
0: yeah no that that makes perfect sense and uh, well that is what from personal experience as well when i've been experimenting with with high amounts it's been what i've been doing that just two to one ratios continuing to use that and and just go a little bit higher and see how it works i do think there are some papers that have found that maybe fructose transporters can transport more than 30 grams per hour but but i don't think there's a whole lot of evidence and i and if I remember correctly from the uh, from iors paper about the the ultra runners, what they did was simply use standard uh, a standard mm. two to one ratio, although i don't quote me on that, I may be wrong
1: yeah, I think you're right I think I remember looking looking for that information because when we were when we were looking at um, making our own energy gels and things, there was a there was some considerable debate as, around whether to whether to have a two to one glucose fructose ratio or whether to stray from that and increase the amount of fructose. And although there was like a sniff of some potential rationale for increasing the fructose, we actually thought no. At the moment, the evidence is still kind of piled in the way that two to one is worked. It ex- it's accepted by people, so so go with that.
0: Yep uh all right so the next topic then that I want to discuss is the the format of the energy uh, products and format i mean we have discussed this already a little bit with gels you said gels are king uh yeah. one thing actually a follow up on that uh, when when you have uh the athletes that are taking a lot of gels on on the bike in a triathlon uh, would they typically mix it in a bottle and just get a lot of it in in that way or would they actually fill up their pockets or bento boxes on the bike and so on? What what's the yeah I how, think how do they do it practically
1: i think a lot of them do put them into a into a, a water bottle because although it makes it a little bit harder to meter out the dosage you kind of just have to do a bit of practicing in your head of like thinking well roughly how much of a squeeze how much of a mouthful is the same as in a normal gel to calibrate, you know, your your perception of how much you're having per hour. There's obvious advantages to that because you're not having to rip a gel open every every 15, 20 minutes and deal with the packaging and all that sort of stuff. The downside is it obviously takes a bottle cage up, which could be used for for drinks. And in the heat, that might be one of the times when people would consider going back the other way and and prioritizing carrying more liquid and having more more calories in their in their pockets as it were we're i don't i i think there's still it's it's weird isn't it there's not people putting energy gels into water bottles and maybe if they're thick energy gels having to water them down a little bit there's still not a great industry elegant solution to all of that and hopefully at some point there will be Um, we're certainly looking at with our precision fuel gels we will make a 90 gram gel you know what a single pouch which contains the equivalent of three normal energy gels and um, mm-hmm. they're not too distant future because i think f- for one on the run that makes a lot of sense because being a, with a with a resealable cap you know you can you can yep. carry one unit and get three three gels down you but even if you were going to empty those into a bottle on the bike it's less packaging and less waste and stuff so So that kind of makes sense. So we're we're going to experiment. Well, we are already experimenting with prototypes of that. We're just trying to refine the packaging at the moment. But I don't think it matters how you you do it as long as you have some kind of um, handle on how much you're taking in. That's the important thing
0: yeah no i think as you say the, the downside well yeah there, there are a couple of downsides with potentially not having enough uh, or having getting as much uh fluid on board but that's where using the aid stations becomes yeah. important just even if it's just to get water from the aid stations or yeah. or, or electrolyte drinks. And,
1: and a lot of tri bikes will have a drink system up front these days and potentially a bottle behind the saddle as well so if you add that along with your down tube bottle then there's quite there's quite a big capacity there
0: yeah yeah there is there is uh, so, and well, one other uh, interesting topic regarding the format uh, is the the trend of using hydrogels, like Morton that you mentioned. Yeah, uh, what's your what's your take on on hydrogels uh, for uh, energy products?
1: I think I think the the scientific consensus is definitely coming down along the line of they're they're definitely they're definitely no worse than any other type of of um, carbohydrate in terms of absorption and, and whatnot but also there's a there is a significant question mark about the claims that they are significantly better um to me i don't i think you know as a as a company morton do some fantastic things i've used their products in races myself from both from a performance and a sort of a, um, like a an interest point of view and they they seem really good but I think. Like, I think a lot of the industry is guilty of just like overblown claims with what's, in, with what's in products. And hydrogels have a plausible scientific basis for why they might be better. But do I believe that they're like a, an absolute game changer or something like that? You know, not really. I think that if they were, then you would see much bigger performance differences in the athletes that are using them
0: yeah i i think a great podcast uh to listen to for those interested in learning about the the scientific evidence is uh fuel the pedal uh it's a podcast with mostly nutrition uh, topics and to uh, cycling and they had two british uh scientists on that, that must have been uh almost a year ago now but, but yeah, they it was, did it was lewis james episode.
1: it was lewis james wasn't it i think and is yeah. it sam MP maybe
0: I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And and uh, and they they said exactly what you say that scientifically they've been shown to be definitely no worse, but also maybe not not better. Uh, I do think from a coaching perspective, I've had several athletes use them, and and a couple of athletes at least say that they, on an individual case by case basis, they can be a game changer with athletes that have had some GI issues. Yeah. For some of them, it just seems to work they seem to work really well sit well in the stomach so yeah definitely not not to discount them at all but but i think it's more of an individual and then than a general generalizable um, claim that they can can work better
1: yeah and that's i think you find that's that's the case quite often with hydration and nutrition the same as it is with food and drink in life you know people do have their little favorites of what what they like and that's there's a bit of emotion and um sort of placebo effect if you like tied up in in all of that and none of that is is a bad thing if you if used to your advantage if you if you want to take a if you can find a product that for whatever reason you you really believe will help you it's far better to use that product than use something else which you have doubts about because you know for some people we i'm, I'm pretty certain that an energy gel that costs you know significantly more may for some people result in it feeling like it it performs better because in the same way that a really expensive suit will make someone feel better at a job interview, you know, because we, we know that that phenomenon is very real with human beings.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about the the GI uh, distressed thing. Whether that might be a real effect, and if so, if there's something that is different on uh, in, at the physiology level with those yeah. individuals that experience that. Of course, I've, I'm not uh, uh, definitely not disputing that even that could be partially down to placebo, but 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 potentially that there could also be just individual variations that cause it to for some people work and reduce the amount of gi distress or, or eliminate it that they've had with other products
1: yeah yeah and and that that really is one of the the key things for people to take home with the hydration and nutrition stuff we always come back to it but there's always a bit of tri- individualized trial and error that that matters a yeah. lot and one of one of our aims for the future actually is to bring a lot of our these these case studies that we've got of athletes doing races together on the web so that people can just re- read them and read what, you know, Sam Appleton had at Ironman St. George on the bike and run, how his performance was and all this. So not, not necessarily with a view to people copying what, what these people do, but just comparing that with what Emma Pallant does or what Sarah Crowley does or with what um, an age grouper does so that they can start to get an appreciation of all these different strategies that probably work for different individuals That hopefully not only gives some parameters for carb intake, fluid intake, salt intake to calibrate thinking, but it also gives a level of reassurance that you've got to find out what works for you and not worry about what other people are doing so much.
0: Yep yeah no that that's uh that makes a little sense and i mean yeah you have already had sam appleton's a data i think on your yeah. blog and i i always appreciate reading the these different case studies and uh well your uh chris uh at uh, ph was kind enough to send a lot of case studies that i don't think have been published to me but uh, it was very nice to just dig into them and and just see what different athletes have been have been doing in different races
1: yeah, one of one of those actually that we've sent to you is one that we're discussing a lot internally in the business, and I'm sure you wouldn't mind me, me mentioning it. Is um, Dougal Allen is an adventure racer and quite a successful Ironman athlete from New Zealand who is definitely been pushing the upper limits of carbohydrate intake and he's a big guy and he races very fast, but he's someone that we're really excited to chat to further about, you know, the, the kind of the gut training and all those sort of things, because he's been, he's been quite a big advocate of that for a while. And when you look at some of his race plans, his fueling strategies are really quite aggressive, but they seem to work really well for him. So yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely some interesting case studies out there and we, we are on a, on a mission to sort of bring more of them into the, into the public domain.
0: Yep uh all right so uh let's move on to another question and just trying to tie these things together a little bit with uh with the fueling and the hydration and sodium those three levers that you mentioned uh what what are your general recommendations uh when it comes to how how to combine them and are there any things that you should be avoiding when it when when it comes to planning your your race nutrition hydration strategy so that you still have those three levers to pull and and can can do that effectively
1: yeah um i guess the place to start is to say that in general because we talked about this a long long time ago i think the first time you and i spoke was in general i still am a believer in the philosophy of largely hydrating with your what's in your bottles and maybe getting your salts and electrolytes in there and Taking calories and carbohydrates from somewhere separate predominantly in order that you have the flexibility to manipulate the, the levers separately because when you put all of your energy your electrolytes your fluids in one bottle, then you run the risk of if those proportions aren't exactly what you need if you need more fluid that day, you drink twice as many bottles as you would have done on a cold day you don't need twice as much energy and that can that can be a recipe for GI distress. Uh, with that being said, though, the caveat to that is that when races are shorter, sometimes the advantages of having everything in one bottle outweigh, you know, the disadvantages. So, using like a, a classic sports drink, you know, carbohydrate, electrolyte, fluid, all in one bottle, is probably an eminently sensible thing to do in a warmer marathon or in a in a um, Olympic distance triathlon on the bike to get a lot of calories in easily or something like that. But I would say. I know that a lot of the people that you coach and and listen to this will probably be longer distance athletes. and I would say, try as much as possible, not exclusively, but try as much as possible to separate out your fluids, electrolytes together and your calories separately, because then as you want more calories, you can just have more gels or more chews or more bars. As you want more fluids and electrolytes, you can drink more from your bottles and you don't have to double dose. The other thing that I would say, and this is something that we've worked really hard to correct with our product range, is like be really careful you're not kind of double dosing on things by having different products. Like lots of energy gels have quite a bit of sodium in them. And then, but people don't necessarily realize that if it's in the small print on the back. So they work out what sodium they need and then they're taking, they're getting an extra 50% of sodium from their energy gels. So all of a sudden they're taking 50% more than their plan called for or you know um the same can be true with i mean we caffeine is something we haven't touched on at all but that's a classic one where people don't realize there's caffeine in certain products and that so what that what i'm trying to say with that one is like really understand what is in each of the products you have because you might have one brand of gel which has 22 grams of carbohydrate in it and you might have another brand of gel which has you know 28 grams of carbohydrate in it now in one gel that's not a huge difference but if you're taking like three gels an hour all the same brand all throughout a nine-hour race you're not comparing apples with apples there if you're not so we've made our energy gels all of them are bang on 30 grams of carbohydrate the electrolyte levels in our drinks are either 500 milligrams a liter a thousand milligrams a liter or 1500 milligrams a liter so that you can really clearly see what your putting together and and i think that's when it comes to that planning and executing process like understanding what's actually in the products that you're taking is really important
0: yeah Uh, what is the the best i mean you have resource great resources on your website for helping with planning these things Uh, you have blog posts and maybe even have do you have any spreadsheets if you would direct people to further read about and learn about these things and, and look at it in detail uh in front of their computer when they can sort of really absorb it and, and see these things in action like adding numbers to spreadsheet perhaps what, what what are the best resources that you have that you would uh advise people to go to
1: yeah on, on our site if you want a broad introduction to the type of things we've talked about we've got a blog which is called the the weight it's called something like the way to fuel and hydrate endurance performance and it's sort of subtitled the three levers and we can definitely link to that i can send you a link to that for the for the show notes so people can go in there that sets the scene and it recaps a lot of what we've talked about putting the levers separately now beyond that we've got a tool on the website at the moment which is the free hydration plan where you can put in your details you know about your racing and it will give you an idea of, you know, it will put you in a bucket of low, medium, high, or very high when it comes to fluid and salt requirements. So you can start and it will give you some parameters around that. And then on the page on the website where we've got our precision fuel energy gels, there's a button which says, how much fuel do I need? And that's got something called the quick carb calculator behind it where you can where you can basically punch in the duration and intensity of the activity you're doing and the mode of exercise and it will give you that ballpark 30 grams or 30 to 60 grams of carb 60 grams 60 to 90 grams of carb so that you can again start to get a feeling for where your ballpark of energy intake should be then beyond that it's really moving into the into the space of going okay well if if the planner is suggesting that my range of fluid intake might be 500 to 750 mils with 500 milligrams of sodium and i need 60 grams of carbs it's then time to hit the streets and give it a try and at that point the next course of action from from our perspective would be for people to book a free um a free video call with one of this with a team here at ph to kind of discuss how it's going and that's available through the website as well you can just book a call in on on, um, google hangouts with the team and and sort of go through things in the future we are in development at the moment is a more comprehensive complete sort of Fueling and hydration planner for events. And that will be on our website in the next few months. But that's a monster project that, like every project that you start, you think that'll be ready very soon. And then you realize it's going to take a few months.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At 50% budget and 100% time or something like that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You got it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, that's that's all great information. And, and just to uh, to piggyback on the the discussion around the, those three levers and how to how to get in the things you need and, and what to take in a race. So something that I've personally found works reasonably well for half distance races for me is to have one bottle with with the gels, getting the energy through that and then having one bottle with uh, with electrolytes and uh, a pretty big bottle at that, and then just relying on water from the aid stations. And then I can get around the, uh, the course with just two bottles, one of which is integrated in the frame. So it's so actually from an Perfect. aerodynamic perspective as well. That's the other thing, uh, considering aerodynamics yeah. as well, and how many bottles you want to carry and where you want to carry them. So
1: yeah, Can I, can uh, I ask yeah, you actually, working. Michael, as someone who does this on a regular basis, when you put energy gels in your water bottle, do you add a little bit of water to them or do you find that they – sort of travel yeah through. okay
0: yeah i i definitely add, add water i filled the i filled the bottle so it might yeah. be in an 800 milliliter uh bottle it might be actually 400 milliliters of fluid and uh, the rest is the, the yeah. gels so you do get some f- some fluid from from that bottle as well it's not not just the energy
1: yeah no it makes sense yeah
0: but obviously you can't get the fluid without the energy as you say so that's not a you can you don't have the two separate in that sense but for that i have the the electrolyte bottle and then relying on aid stations for additional water
1: yeah yeah it makes sense
0: uh all right so i do have one more question and this is one that i got in from a listener uh, yeah. um, a few weeks ago and it's an interesting one so i'm just going to read read it uh from my screen second screen here and that is Uh, this listener writes i'm hoping you can solve what i've come to refer to as the sweat mystery if you can only absorb about one liter of fluid per hour but have a sweat rate of say two liters per hour how is it possible to finish a race that lasts over nine hours without experiencing severe dehydration uh perhaps we can tackle that part first (laughs) and then there are some other parts to this question
1: so it is a it's it's a very good question and i think what's the best way to start on that one so when we talk about athletes having a sweat rate of for example two liters an hour or an absorption rate of one liter an hour and those are obviously really nice round figures to make the maths easy for this example the the reality is that even if you measure your sweat rate at race intensity even over several hours in a training session or something like that you're only ever going to come up with an approximate figure and if you measure your sweat rate for an hour, you'll get an hourly figure. But if you then do three hours, and it's about three times that figure, but not quite, or it's a little bit more or less, did you sweat the same in the first hour, but then a little bit less or a little bit more in the second hour and third hour with the environment? There's there's a lot of variables that push those numbers around. So simply banging the numbers into a spreadsheet and going two liters an hour is my rate over nine hours, that equals 18 liters of sweat loss there's a big margin of error in that number is what i would say first off i would say there's also a big margin of error in the we can only absorb one liter an hour because that is definitely in the correct ballpark but if that's only 800 milliliters or if that's actually 1250 milliliters there's also a big margin of error comes into it so the, the other thing to remember is that you're, in terms of like most so most people will and should finish an ironman dehydrated to an extent we know that the when you look at the numbers anyone who finishes having gained body weight is usually not in a good way it means they've over consumed mainly fluid and and are quite possibly hypernatremic if we know that a lot of the faster finishers tend to lose anywhere up to five six seven percent of their body weight although i think for the average finisher it's probably more prudent to be in the like, or more common to be in the sort of two to four percent dehydration range so we know there's a bit of a leeway there and what accounts for those other like missing numbers is is probably a lot down to the body being incredibly good at self-regulation over a a period of time so when you're when you're doing an endurance event the main thing that drives how much you sweat is a combination of the exercise intensity which is under your control conscious and subconscious control and the environmental temperature and that drives your sweat rate because you have to sweat x amount to cool your core temperature to stop you from overheating now when you start out you might be sweating on the bike at two liters an hour early in the ride because you're pushing 250 watts and it's quite hot and that but as you, as you start to dehydrate, one thing we know is that dehydration, especially when it gets more severe, results in a blunting of sweat rate. So because you get less blood flow to the skin you get less, and your blood volume drops, you get less blood available to be because sweat comes from blood plasma. So your sweat rate decreases. Now, if your sweat rate decreases and your core body temperature is going up, you're going to slow down a little bit as a result which is going to because the body is like adjusting all these levers to 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 not lose too much fluid so you don't overheat too much so you don't end up in a heap on the floor plus it's going to drive you to be thirsty to consume a little bit more and maybe even and there is no solid proof on on this point, but I've seen it with athletes who have very high sweat rates at times when some athletes are losing huge amounts of fluid. It does appear that they can absorb huge amounts of fluid as well. I have seen riders in the tour take drinking three bottles an hour in, in for short periods of time, which is like 1.5 liters. Now you can't say for sure whether they're absorbing that, but they must be absorbing most of it because they're not stopping and peeing the whole time. So I would say when you that question is a really good one because when you do look at the the maths in a simplistic way they don't add up but but the body is so the body in that environment and the, all of those variables come together so that things are a little bit more finely tuned and obviously when they do go catastrophically wrong when you do become really dehydrated you can't maintain the intensity so the so the sweat rate is going to drop off so everything kind of is homeostasis everything comes to a level and and when you look at that data that that's been produced on ironman finishes and everyone's clustered in that or the majority of people are clustered in that sort of like a few percent of dehydration we can see that that's just like that's what the body can cope with somebody's a little bit more somebody's a little bit less that that's kind of in the ballpark and so it's it's a bunch of like assumptions and rounding errors that don't that that can be punched into a spreadsheet but don't add up in the real world does that have i, have I made sense with that
0: absolutely yeah total uh, total sense and and it uh it sounds uh, completely reasonable to me uh, good answer Th- then the other part of the question is that let me see here uh so i can find it if heat acclimation makes you sweat more wouldn't uh doing heat heat acclimation protocol ahead of a hot race make this picture even bleaker because well then the assumption would be that you would lose even more fluid to sweat without perhaps being able to take on more but uh, whether those assumptions are correct or not uh well what what are your comments on that
1: yeah it's it's a fair it's again it's a totally fair question if you look at it one dimensionally if you say that like sweat loss is bad because you lose more fluid then but what the body did—the reason the body up-regulates up- your sweating response when you're heat acclimated—is because the priority is cooling down. So you you need to reduce core body temperature, and the most effective way to shed heat from the body is to evaporate water off the skin and sweat off the skin. So you sweat more. So feasibly, what it means is that you are going to have to drink more. Whether the body can and will up-regulate up- the amount of fluid you you can absorb is TBD, but the but the the concept that your, your sweat rate will allow you to maintain a higher metabolic output means that you'll race faster so it is it's it's one of those which is a trade off and as you lose as you sweat more quickly you become thirsty more quickly so you will drink more and as we know on many physiological systems that the doing an ironman or a half ironman or whatever especially in the heat involves like treading a really fine line across all of these things and so it's, it it just means that the goalposts in that dimension have moved. But I think when you when you really zoom out and say, and I'm not not saying this this person's asking a, a facetious question. I'm sure they're not. But honestly, like, would you just go to Hawaii without doing any heat acclimation because you thought it would make you race faster? I can't imagine many athletes putting their hand up and saying, "Oh yeah, no, I'd come straight from the cold to the heat," even if we don't understand entirely all of the reasons why intuitively and through practical experience and lots of other evidence we know that heat acclimation overall is a massive benefit to racing in the heat so should always be done if you can
0: yeah that makes sense uh that's that's all for the the main topics that i had uh do you just quickly want to mention as well you have said that you have your precision fuel range coming up as well but we haven't officially talked about it so can you just quickly uh describe what what that is for the listeners that uh, may not be aware
1: um yeah so we've just launched precision fuel alongside precision hydration it's it's kind of um, to do the same for fueling as we've done for hydration which is educate and make the numbers around what you need to take in really transparent and easy to hit so we've got this quick carb calculator on our website so you can figure out based on your mode of exercise the intensity and duration roughly how much carbohydrate you need and then the first two products that we've got in the precision fuel range are 30 grams of carb energy gel and a 30 grams of carbohydrate per 500 ml um drink which, which also has um 500 milligrams of sodium for serving as well so they're the first two we've also got an energy chew coming out in in the forthcoming months as well so they're they're available as we record on pre-order and probably by the time this is live on for order on the on precisionhydration.com and if p and there's an, a number of blogs around fueling and you know not necessarily just how to use our products but how to fuel in general which are worth looking up in the in the in the blog section of the website as well
0: yeah yeah all right so i do want to ask the rapid fire questions of you as well we did them the first time you were on but that was some years ago now so so let's see uh, i don't remember what you answered back then and, but uh, let's go through them and the first one is what's your favorite book blog or resource related to endurance sport so
1: i reckon this is this is a more of a slightly off the wall one but there's um one there's a blog that i've been reading so a guy called gordo Byrne, who is a triathlete and a triathlon coach quite a few a few years ago now has has a blog now and he 's retired as an athlete and as he 's a dad, same as I am he 's a little bit older than me he's he still keeps fit and active, but I read his blog on a regular basis because it 's a really interesting take on Um, A guy who's who's navigating fatherhood, staying fit after competition, you know, after retiring from triathlon and that kind of thing. And I'll shoot you a link to to that blog because we uh, for PH, we um, reached out to Gordo and asked him a bunch of questions Uh, during the pandemic because I was reading his blog he was blogging pretty much daily during the pandemic and it was really good and I would just say if you want a different perspective on lots of aspects of life especially around aging athletes and that kind of thing he's a fantastic follow so really good resource and and something I'm you know quite into at the moment
0: yeah that's great i I think uh, a couple of guests have mentioned his blog before but from from the time when he was he was actively racing and i actually thought that he had retired from blogging and writing about this stuff uh, as well so it's really cool to hear that uh, that he's still uh, actively doing it
1: yeah i I can highly recommend his stuff he's got a good opinion on most things
0: yeah Uh, next what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment at the moment,
1: it's um, and no no sponsorship or other endorsement involved. It's my Cervelo Aspiro gravel bike that because the sun's shining and I'm out there on a weekend putting the miles in and really enjoying it.
0: That sounds fantastic. And uh, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success?
1: <sighs> the, I've got lots of bad personal habits that people don't want to copy, and probably the but the one that has helped me over the years is being an early riser and getting up early and getting things done first thing in the morning because I've usually achieved quite a lot by before 9am. And I think if you can do that in your life, then the day throws a lot of things at you, but you've, you've got control first thing in the morning quite often. So get get the important stuff done early. If it's training, yeah. if it's writing a blog, if it's whatever, that's that's probably, a, you know, it's, a, it's something I find helpful anyway
0: right and finally where can listeners follow you on social media of course we have precisionhydration.com for the company website and precisionhydration social media profiles do you have any personal uh, personal uh, outlets
1: i i am on social platforms but not particularly active um probably the best place is to follow like i i write quite a bit and usually that's for the precision hydration blog um so that that is honestly probably the best place to follow and if people have got questions to direct to me personally or the company we're a small team still and they all come in through hello at precisionhydration.com and we're always happy to hear from people with with questions and stuff so feel free to reach out and get in touch
0: great all right thank you so much andy for coming on and uh, taking the time it was uh, great as always to talk to you
1: yeah lovely chat michael and um, hopefully won't be too long before we can do it again
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Andy. As always, you can find the show notes for the episode on scientificdraftlon.com, where we'll link to uh, several articles, uh, one at least by Andy and others by Abby Coleman, the sports scientist at Precision Hydration, on the topics that we discussed today, including how much carbohydrate to consume per hour, whether it's possible to consume more than 90 grams per hour, whether you can train your gut to do that and whether the type of carb in your energy products really matters as well as the resources that i mentioned before the quick carb calculator and the link to book a free consultation with precision hydration do make use of that uh, if you want to it's uh, a free call uh, no strings attached and you can get feedback on your uh, or tips for your race nutrition and hydration strategy We'll have another episode out next Monday uh, just for those of you that didn't hear it last week Uh, but for now I'm taking a bit of a break from the Thursday episodes but I'll keep having episodes out every single Monday probably it will be a mix of interviews but some solo episodes as well because I do know that a lot of people like those solo episodes that uh, we've been doing in the TTS Thursday kind of style so I'll try to keep doing those as well if you are interested in coaching or training plans go and check out scientificdraftlon.com and what we have to offer there we would love to help you achieve your race goals and finally big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com improve your race nutrition and hydration plan by using their free hydration plan or their quick car calculator or by getting a free video call with their experts and get 15% off your order with the promo code that triathlon show five and thank you to roca They can find on roca.com check out their wetsuits suits, swimskins goggles high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving fresh